You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun, Mystery, and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, Volume 211 in the Collected Works. Lecture 10. Perceiving the Christ through Anthroposophy, given in London, April 15, 1922. Again, this was something Steiner did in German, and uh, George Adams, I believe, uh, stated every... uh, the translation, so there are some questions about that. I spoke yesterday about the modern anthroposophical path of knowledge that leads from the physical, sense-perceptible world into the supersensible. By following this path, we can cultivate the exact clairvoyance appropriate to our time. Clairvoyance has always been the foundation of initiation science, but in earlier times it was simply accepted as an elemental force rising from human beings, either with or without being deliberately cultivated. In ancient times, people who achieved spiritual knowledge through instinctive clairvoyance were usually also dependent on the authority of those who traveled this path before them. Given the current level of humankind's development and the needs of the modern human soul, we can no longer take any such principle of authority as our starting point. Over the past three to five centuries, exact science has become increasingly available to us. Of course, it does not yet include the science of initiation, but it does exercise a certain control over our methods of research and modes of thinking, not to mention our entire consciousness. Anyone who aspires to exact clairvoyance in the anthroposophical sense, must constantly exercise a similar control. Clairvoyant insight into the cosmos and the human constitution does not have the same effect on us as a theoretical worldview. Modern initiation science is more than just the sum total of what we know about spiritual supersensible worlds. It is also an active spiritual force that can pervade and fructify all of our human capabilities. One illustration of its effects already exists in our anthroposophical artistic work, which embodies what would otherwise remain mere ideas about the spiritual world. The Goetheanum in Dornach, which will house our independent spiritual university, and is being made possible by the generosity of a number of friends of anthroposophy, is now being built and is already in use, although not yet finished. If the members of any other spiritual movement had reason to construct a headquarters for their society, it goes without saying that they would hire some famous architect to design a building in the Greco-Roman, Renaissance, Gothic or other conventional style. For the Goetheanum in Switzerland, this approach was not possible. It would have been contradictory to the anthroposophical worldview, which is meant to be communicated not only through ideas, but also through human activity. 
Of course, this building is not perfect. In that regard, I am my own harshest critic. But no matter how imperfect it may be as a building, as a work of art, and as a whole, the Gertianum is nonetheless essential as an example to our contemporaries of a new style of architecture. The lines and shapes of this building draw on the same wellspring of life as the ideas about supersensible worlds that we convey in words. In this building in Dornach, all of the sculpture and painting are sustained by a style that will give birth to anthroposophy as it is meant to manifest in modern life. Anyone who visits our independent spiritual university will not only hear the anthroposophical worldview communicated in words from the podium, but will also see it expressed artistically in architecture, sculpture, and painting. Our stage presentations are also intended as simply another artistic means of revealing what can be conveyed in words. Anthroposophy is not intended to be communicated through words alone. It has deep roots in the human spirit. Theoretical anthroposophy is only one branch of a tree with many other branches, which include our artistic and educational efforts. Anthroposophical activity is a factor in many different facets of human existence. If you visit the school in Stuttgart that we have named the Waldorf School, you will not find children being taught anthroposophy in the way we usually teach adults, because the school is strictly non-denominational. Catholic priests provide religious instruction for the Catholic children, Protestant pastors for the Protestants. Today, however, many Germans are not interested in denominational religious instruction, and for these pupils we offer a specially designed religious translation of anthroposophy. But the Waldorf School accomplishes its intended purpose when anthroposophy flows over into real life, specifically into the practical art of education in the broadest sense. Anthroposophy is alive in the personalities of our teachers, inspiring what they do and how they educate and instruct. I mention this second field of practical activity to illustrate anthroposophy's real-life impacts on various fields of human activity. In many respects, however, anthroposophy has already proved especially effective with regard to human religious needs. How does anthroposophy meet religious needs in that part of the civilized world that acknowledges the mystery of Golgotha? That will be the focus of my lecture today, with reference to the anthroposophical path to supersensible worlds as I described it yesterday. Yesterday I pointed out that imaginative perception, the first step toward spiritual perception, can be achieved by performing specific mental exercises. When it becomes active in our souls, we learn to use the mental energy of thinking, which usually provides only shadowy, abstract thoughts, to generate images as vivid, intense, and alive as any that approach us through our senses. Through imaginative perception, we experience our thoughts in the same way that we think in colors or sounds when we give ourselves up to visual or auditory impressions. We live in imaginative perception when we experience our thoughts inwardly, not merely in abstract contours, but as images full of meaning. 
Yesterday I pointed out that imaginative perception allows us to perceive the human temporal body or body of formative forces. But when we rise to this level of perception, we must realize that the first things we see belong to the imaginative element within ourselves. What distinguishes anthroposophical researchers from hallucinators or mediums is exact clairvoyance, that is, the ability to recognize that these earliest images exist within the human being. At first, even when we recognize the forces that shape our earthly bodies, we are learning about something subjective and personal, namely the body of formative forces. But, as I indicated yesterday, we can use the power of suggestion, so to speak, to extinguish these subjective images and empty our consciousness. This state of emptied consciousness has the potential to receive similar images from outside. As anthroposophical researchers, we must be conscious of the need to deliberately erase our first imaginations. Our consciousness is then empty, but it is so intrinsically awake and energized that it receives purely spiritual images, and only such images, from the outer world. The first image we receive is an image of our life in soul and spirit before we descended from spiritual worlds to occupy physical bodies. The objective images that we begin to perceive of the spirit and soul in our surroundings belong to the level of inspired perception. Revelations or objective images of the spiritual world flow into our empty consciousness just as subjective images appeared as the result of strengthening our thinking through specific exercises. In addition to prenatal spiritual experiences, what do we learn about ourselves when inspired perception fills our empty consciousness with objective imaginations? We also experience what we brought with us into physical existence from the spiritual world. As far as our consciousness is concerned, this is initially limited to the mental energy of thinking. This is an important discovery. Philosophers spend a great deal of time thinking about how thinking comes about, but anthroposophists, anthroposophists know that thinking cannot possibly be derived from the physical body. It is a force that we bring with us from the spiritual world where we lived before descending to earth. In that world, thinking was totally different from what it becomes in our ordinary earthly consciousness. Here on earth our thoughts are abstract and suited only to thinking about dead things. At this point, anyone who takes the modern science of initiation seriously must confront our contemporaries with something they may not want to hear. Let me clarify this with an example. As we all know, birth and death lie at opposite ends of our limited human lifespan on earth. Through death we leave the physical body behind. Whether through cremation or decomposition, the corpse returns to its native element, the earth. After death, the body ceases to follow the laws that the human soul imposed on it, beginning at birth. Because it no longer incorporates any aspect of the human soul and spirit, it obeys the same natural laws that prevail among minerals. 
This is the physical fate of the human physical body after death. We must also acknowledge that a similar death occurs when the soul descends from existence in the world of spirit and soul to incarnate into a physical body at birth. This soul enters the physical human body in the same way that the physical human body enters the earthly element at death. As far as consciousness is concerned, our thoughts are the first thing we become aware of bringing with us from the spiritual world. The mental energy of thinking is the corpse of soul and spirit. Before our earthly existence began, our thinking led a life of its own in the world of soul and spirit, but only the corpse of this spiritual force is incorporated into our earthly existence. The physical body carries our thoughts, which are the sole corpse of our former existence, just as the earth receives the corpse of the physical body after death. This is why modern perception is so unsatisfying. As long as we carry around this sole corpse, we grasp only the lifeless aspect of nature. It is an illusion to believe that we can discover anything other than lifeless nature through our modern experiments. Of course, we will encounter organized living bodies as well as mere lifeless matter. But with the undeveloped thinking of personal consciousness, we will not be able to understand them. Even if we were able to create life in a laboratory, we would not understand it. As a sole corpse of its former self, our thinking is spiritually dead. It understands only dead things. We must accept this truth with open minds, because it is important to know that human beings absorbed this dead abstract thinking only at a specific stage in evolution. Because abstract thinking has no inherent life and imposes no constraints on the inner human being, it allows us to become free. This is why human freedom developed only once we began to experience death. Later we will see what we can achieve in the way of imagination, inspiration and intuition through thinking. As I indicated yesterday, this process truly enlivens our thinking. It was dead, but it, be it comes alive in us again when we achieve imagination through the exercises I described. <clears throat> Whereas our power of thinking formerly provided no idea of what we were before descending from spiritual to earthly existence, now that our thinking has been re-enlivened, we look back on our imagined and inspired thinking in our prenatal existence in the spiritual world. We perceive the life we led in a spiritual state before being somehow absorbed into the physical body on earth at conception. There our thinking was alive, but in the consciousness unique to the physical body, it is dead. Imagination re-enlivens it. We enliven the unborn soul. Everything we achieve through imagination and inspiration, the spiritual world in which we then live, our enhanced capacity for real thinking, the perception of spiritual beings and events, is nothing other than an enlivening of something that is dead to our ordinary consciousness. 
within the enlivened thinking that develops into imagination and inspiration, something happens for modern human beings that was impossible for the ancient Greeks, not to mention the Egyptians or Persians, of the time before the mystery of Golgotha. Before the Christ descended from spiritual heights to earth, coming alive through initiation science was very different from what it has since become for modern humanity. Such historical changes in the human soul are disregarded by history today, which considers only outer events. We learn of these changes only through initiation science, that is, exact clairvoyance. After achieving imagination and inspiration, we recognize that something unsettling has happened in us. When we become clairvoyant, we are shocked to realize that we have become too egotistical, that the activity of the personal, capital I, has become too strong. No one who has received appropriate spiritual instruction will say otherwise. Anything else is an illusion. Before the mystery of Golgotha, initiates had the opposite experience. They were forced to realize that initiation science weakened the I. In a certain sense, they became unconscious or less incarnated. As a consequence of initiation, they experienced themselves less strongly as human beings. But without initiation, the I grew stronger. In a certain sense, the healthy degree of egotism that is natural and necessary in ordinary life was extinguished in initiates who lived before the mystery of Golgotha. They felt as if they were being poured out into cosmic heights and that the power of their consciousness was suppressed. For modern human beings, however, initiation makes the I stronger. We become more conscious of it. In his experience at Damascus, as described in the New Testament, Paul was the first to feel that the I needed something to prevent it from becoming too strong through initiation. You know this, I I do not need to tell you about it. Through this experience, through the mystery of Golgotha, Paul realized that he was granted insight into the spiritual world. In order to endure this insight safely, he had to make his I weaker. Paul coined a universal formula for new initiates when he said, Not I, but the Christ in me. When we acknowledge receiving the Christ into the overly strengthened I, we imbue ourselves with the Christ's power, which entered the earth through the mystery of Golgotha. As a result, the I once again engages in the human constitution in the right way. Paul's words, not I, but the Christ in me, are universally meaningful. They offer direction and orientation for those who experience the Christ's power through modern initiation. I pointed out that modern abstract thinking as we know it in the physical body is a mere corpse of its spiritual essence in prenatal existence. And I emphasized that this is true only of modern human beings. The modern constitution of the human soul has been emerging gradually since the mystery of Golgotha, and our thinking quietly began to assume its present character three or four centuries later. Prior to that time, among all the peoples of antiquity, thinking carried some of its soul's spiritual life and inner vitality into earthly existence. 
This statement can be readily confirmed by anyone who truly studies the changes in the makeup of the human soul over the course of humankind's evolution. <clears throat> if we look at ancient worldviews, whether derived from initiation science or not, we find that the people of ancient times always saw the spiritual aspect of minerals, plants, animals, rivers and springs, thunder and lightning. It is trivial to think of this view of inspirited nature as the result of poetic imagination. What we call animism never actually existed. In reality, ancient modes of thinking also perceived spiritual activity whenever plants were observed, for example. Where our ordinary modern consciousness sees only the green of a leaf or the red of a flower, the people of ancient times also saw spirit and soul at work. They saw the soul's spiritual element in clouds and rivers, in mountains and valleys. We now perceive the natural world without its spiritual component, but they perceived it as inwardly imbued with spirit. They were able to do so because the living power of their thinking reached out to the spiritual element in nature, just as we now reach out with our hands to touch physical objects. Their living organs of thinking explored the soul's spiritual aspect of the physical world through organs of a spiritual touch. As time passed, the great vitality that thinking possessed in ancient times was gradually suppressed. Since the 4th century AD, thinking, thinking has become inwardly dead and capable of perceiving only the dead aspect of living things plants, animals, and other human beings. When the people of ancient times observed themselves, they experienced their thinking as an extension of what they had been in the spiritual world before birth. They remained aware of being surrounded by the spiritual element that had surrounded them before their lives on earth. Around the 3rd or 4th century AD, this experience changed as people began to perceive dead thinking when they looked inside themselves. This gradual inner death of thinking is an all-important historical event. <clears throat> For a moment, let us imagine that nothing happened to counteract thinking's gradual death in the human soul. What if earthly evolution had continued beyond the 3rd or 4th century AD without the intervention of the mystery of Golgotha? If the cross had never been erected on Golgotha, what would have happened to human souls? People would have begun to feel dead in their earthly bodies. Anticipating physical death, they would have experienced earthly birth as the beginning of soul death, because human souls would have been caught up in the death of their physical bodies if the mystery of Golgotha had not intervened. This phenomenon would have spread gradually over the entire earth, affecting more and more individuals and becoming increasingly pronounced. How tragic it would have been to realize that we, human we humans were so closely bound up with the earth that we could no longer maintain the degree of life that people had until the third or fourth century and that we were forced to follow our bodies into death. Our souls would have had to die, that is, to participate in the fate of our physical bodies, this is not what happened, however. The mystery of Golgotha intervened, changing the course of earthly evolution. 
For individuals rooted in the Christian faith, the usual first approach to the mystery of Golgotha is through the Gospels. There is nothing wrong with this approach, but initiation science elaborates on what the Gospels communicate to even the simplest hearts and minds. In the spiritual world that appears when we ascend from imagination to intuition, not limiting ourselves to mere belief, the mystery of Golgotha stands out as the greatest comfort in cosmic existence. Initiates who passed through the stages of imagination and inspiration in the right way formerly felt that the I had become too strong, not as the foundation of human freedom, but as a possible obstruction to developments intended to save human beings from the consequences of dead thinking. From the perspective of initiation science, the tragedy of the death of thinking becomes all the more apparent. In the background, however, stands the truth of the mystery of Golgotha. In historical, supersensible events, at the right moment in earthly evolution, the divine being of the Christ first lived in the body of Jesus of Nazareth and then passed through the death on Golgotha. If we undergo initiation in the right way, we experience both the over-strengthening of the I and the truth of the mystery of Golgotha. Through spiritual perception of the events recorded by the first Gospel writers, we discern both the mystery of Golgotha and the origin of the Gospels. We also learn to understand the truth of what Paul said. If the Christ had not risen from the dead, our faith would be in vain and our souls dead. We realize what would have happened if the mystery of Golgotha had not occurred if a god had not descended to experience life and death in a human body, and unite with the earth's forces. Formerly the Christ's forces were not active in the development of earthly humanity, but now they are. Paul's words meant that the Christ had to experience death and overcome it, emerging victorious as a living spirit. Since his resurrection, he lives with and for human beings who would possess only dead thinking were it not for his deed. As if in memory, Paul became aware that a God, the Christ, has descended to earth to live. Behind our ordinary reading of gospel contents rises an intuitive vision, the actual source of the gospels. Through inspiration and intuition, initiates develop an inner strength that leads not only to an awareness of life after death, but also to objective imaginations and truths about the outer world. Thus initiates are not dependent on what the Gospels tell them. If the Gospels had not already been written, (coughs) initiates could write them themselves. In fact, initiates take the correct view of the Gospel writers, realizing that enough of thinking's ancient vitality persisted in the first three or four centuries A.D. to allow some individuals, even non-initiates, to behold the mystery of Golgotha and interpret it correctly. If initiates of the early Christian era had not interpreted the mystery of Golgotha through the gnosis of the time, which is similar but not identical to modern anthroposophy, there would be no Gospels because the Gospels were written out of the initiation science of old. In earlier times, the living quality of thinking was preserved in earthly life, or was at least easier to resurrect. 
Since the early Christian era, it is resurrected through direct perception of the mystery of Golgotha. As a result of the Christ's death and resurrection, human thinking has been re-enlivened to such an extent that the soul does not have to die along with the body, as it would have if the mystery of Golgotha had not happened. By looking up from the excessively strong eye to images of the mystery of Golgotha, initiates can read the development of the human soul. Through their insight into this particular chapter of initiation science, they know that the Christ's resurrection has re-enlivened human souls. Thus modern anthroposophical initiation science leads to an inwardly enlivened understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. It leads to the Christ, not away from him, as some critics would have it. It is a spiritual way of finding the Christ. Before I conclude, please allow me to briefly outline the development of human consciousness from the perspective of modern initiation science as it has been affected by the mystery of Golgotha. In very ancient times, thinking was alive and people felt surrounded by not only the physical but also the spiritual aspects of all the beings of nature. The spirit in nature was perceived through the dreamlike consciousness of instinctive clairvoyance, which provided a primal connection to the spiritual world through living thinking. Certain outstanding individuals, analogous to today's highly educated scientists, excelled in the initiation science of those primeval times when all knowledge was initiation science, because even ordinary people possessed clairvoyance of a sort. Everyone achieved certain levels of imagination, inspiration, and intuition, though not the levels I described earlier. Any degree of intuition, excuse me, any degree of intuition allowed them to experience not only images of the spiritual world, but also actual spiritual beings. The I-being of the spiritual beholder flowed out into the surrounding spirit. Through such initiation, Human beings experienced specific beings who descended from spiritual worlds as teachers. These were not physical beings. They could not be perceived with physical senses, nor did they use words that could be heard with physical ears. Human beings could communicate with them only through spiritual perception. Mighty spiritual perceptions allowed the initiates of primeval times to contact beings that descended to them in spiritual not physical, love, and taught them about a soul-spiritual existence unknown to physical thinking. This is the essence of ancient spiritual perception and knowledge. To summarize it in a single concise sentence, the first great teachers of humanity were spiritual beings who entered into spiritual intercourse with the first initiates and communicated to them the mystery of human birth the mystery of living souls descending from prenatal existence in supersensible spiritual worlds. In those ancient times, the mystery of birth was a matter of direct knowledge. It was revealed directly by the spiritual world itself. Initiates with fully developed clairvoyant perception realized what others suspected on the basis of instinctive clairvoyance, namely that we are unborn, Initiates learned to look back in soul and spirit to earlier destinies, to see what they had been before descending into the physical world. 
This is how people were taught the mysteries of birth in ancient times. Although in some ways the outward rituals of their mysteries prefigured the mystery of Golgotha, death was not yet viewed as it would be after that incisive event. People acknowledged being unborn, that is, being endowed with living souls that predate physical existence, and they counted on the fact that the living human soul would survive death. They were not yet aware of the full tragedy of death, namely the possibility that the soul might also die at the death of the physical body. As time went on, however, thinking became less and less alive. Abstract thinking, thinking's corpse, descended from the spiritual world as people began to experience outer death as increasingly important. Mystery rituals that foreshadowed the mystery of Golgotha offered consolation in the idea that the gods cannot die and thus divine human souls must rise from the dead. This consoling thought, however, had yet to be transformed into knowledge through the mystery of Golgotha. As paradoxical as it may sound to modern human ears, the spiritual teachers of old descended from life in the spiritual world only when human beings opened their souls to them. These spiritual beings served as humanity's teachers, but they did not participate in human destinies, and they themselves were ignorant of the mystery of death. The fact that the people of very ancient times learned about the mystery of birth but not the mystery of death from souls who had experienced only birth, not death, is an important mystery in its own right. Consequently, when early Christian initiates contemplated the mystery of Golgotha, they saw something that no ancient mystery wisdom could have revealed. They perceived a total absence of any knowledge of death in the worlds that proclaimed the ancient wisdom, because none of the divine teachers of humankind had ever experienced death. Human destiny was foreign to the gods, and as human thinking developed, people began to live in fear that the death of the body would also mean the death of the soul. At that point the divine kingdoms decided to send a god down to earth to experience death and incorporate it into their wisdom. Intuitive perception of the mystery of Golgotha reveals that it had consequences not only for human beings but also for the gods. The gods who had been able to tell earthly human beings only about the mystery of birth realized that the earth had gradually outgrown the divine forces implanted in it and that human souls were on the verge of succumbing to death. The gods then sent the Christ to earth to learn about human death and overcome it with his divine power. From the perspective of the gods, the mystery of Golgotha looks like this. For the sake of their own destiny, the gods introduced the mystery of Golgotha into human evolution. This event was necessary not only for human beings, but also for the gods. Formerly, divine events occurred only in divine spiritual worlds. But now a god descended to earth, and a super-earthly event occurred in earthly guise. In the crucifixion and resurrection, a spiritual event was enacted in an earthly setting. This is the single most important thing we can learn about Christianity through modern anthroposophical spiritual science. When we look at the mystery of Golgotha as an instance of divine participation in earthly evolution, 
that is, in terms of what the gods accomplished on behalf of the earth and earthly destiny, we also behold an event that concerns the gods themselves. As long as our human activity is restricted to earthly life, we develop earth-related forces, which are not strong enough to overcome the overly strengthened I. The mystery of Golgotha cannot be understood through earthly reasoning, so we must move beyond our ordinary earthly experience in our efforts to understand it. Initiation science encourages us to see the event of Golgotha as an intervention that was at once cosmic and earthly. When we do so, we imbue ourselves with the cognitive power to come to the following realization. Through ordinary earthly human forces, we receive everything the earth contributes to the human eye. When we look toward the mystery of Golgotha, however, we are lifted away from the earth, and a life is enkindled in us that cannot be enkindled in any other way. In turning toward the mystery of Golgotha, we absorb a supersensible element. We recognize that humanity needs a new type of supersensible inner feeling and perception to replace the living thinking of old. We also recognize that we can achieve such perception through the mystery of Golgotha. We experience the deadness of our thinking, and as a result we realize that since the mystery of Golgotha it is not I, but the Christ in me that truly makes us alive. The purpose of modern anthroposophy is to encourage these realizations and to deepen rather than deaden our religious life by allowing us to break with old traditions consciously. Spiritual scientific knowledge of the mystery of Golgotha allows us to transcend all the grave doubts we experience in modern religious life, which result primarily from our scientific education. Although exoteric science has made us free and achieved great outer triumphs, it has also, it has also instilled very understandable doubts in our hearts with regard to religious feeling and knowledge of our own supersensible future, excuse me, supersensible nature. Anthroposophy, which works out of the spirit of science, has taken up the task of eliminating these doubts and implanting truly religious life in the human soul. Far from contributing to the death of religion, anthroposophy will foster a revival of religious feeling and a new understanding of Christianity which can be correctly understood and accepted only by turning to the mystery of Golgotha. Because anthroposophically derived spiritual knowledge will not only revive old religious feelings but also enkindle new ones, it is safe to say that anthroposophy harbors no sectarian aspirations. This is as true of anthroposophy as it is of any other science. Anthroposophy's purpose is not to found sects. Its intent is to serve pre-existing religions and to revitalize Christianity in this sense. But anthroposophy feels called upon to do more than simply preserve old religious feelings and allow traditional religious activity to continue. Its aim is to contribute not only to reviving but also to resurrecting the religious life that has suffered so severely under modern civilization. Anthroposophy hopes to be a messenger of love that will not only revitalize old religious feelings, 
but also foster an esoteric resurrection of humanity's inner religious sense. The end of lecture 10.